This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on wash and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. America is the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Uh, we have a few more politics to talk about, uh, a few more stories to share, but we want to talk a little bit about uh, Nevada. We'll talk about South Carolina. We'll get everything all squared away. But uh, lest we turn into sports talk radio, we'll just wait a couple hours and we'll find out the answer so we won't spend too much time on predictions. But I do want to talk about Trump um, and some things that happened this last week as we uh, move forward. I think, I think he'll win uh, South Carolina. So what's next? So, We'll do all that good stuff. We've got plenty of politics today, but i got to start off here with something that I heard the other day. I think it was on The Blaze. I think I saw it on The Blaze. Um, it's fantastic. This is Monty Williams. So Monty Williams is a coach for the Oklahoma City Thunder NBA team. His wife was killed... Uh, in a car crash, there was uh, just just a week or so ago, uh, another driver was speeding. They were going 92 in a 45, lost control, and ran into Monty's wife. And uh, they both died, Monty's wife and the driver of, of the, the other car. I want to play this one part of Monty's eulogy for his wife it's it's like a 10 minute video but i just want to play this one part here it is it is as good as it gets take it all in here now i'm going to close with this and i think it's the most important thing that we need to understand everybody's praying for me and my family which is right but let us not forget that there were two people in this situation and that family needs prayer as well and we have no ill will towards that family. In my house, we have a sign that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We cannot serve the Lord if we don't have a heart of forgiveness. That family didn't wake up wanting to hurt my wife. Life is hard. It is very hard. And that was tough. But we hold no ill will towards the Donaldson family. And we, as a group, Brothers united in unity should be praying for that family because they grieve as well. So let's not lose sight of what's important. God will work this out. 
My wife is in heaven. God loves us. God is love. And when we walk away from this place today, let's celebrate. Because my wife is where we all need to be. And I'm envious of that. But I got five crumb snatchers I got to deal with. I love you guys for taking time out of your day to celebrate my wife. We didn't lose her. When you lose something, you can't find it. I know exactly where my wife is. I'll miss holding her hand. I'll miss talking with my wife. Um, Sam and Coach Donovan probably couldn't figure out why I always wanted to get out of the office, uh, me and Mo Cheeks. Um, Mo probably wanted to go do something else, but we always wanted to... <laughs> get out of the office. I just enjoy being with my wife. I enjoy being with my family. And most of the times we didn't do anything. We'd just be at the house sitting around um, doing nothing. I'm going to miss that. Let's not lose sight of what's important. God is important. What Christ did on the cross is important. Let's not lose sight of that family that also lost someone that they love. Like how awesome is that? How awesome is that? Like to recognize the other family and to forgive them and to ask for prayer for them. I don't know. Listen, maybe, maybe this is unfair. Uh, this analogy I'm going to make, but I, I look at this, this man who just lost his wife, who he clearly adored and look how he's reacting to that. And then I compare that to Cam Newton a couple weeks ago who lost a game and how he acted. Now, I don't want to pick on, uh, I don't want to pick on Cam Newton because whatever. What I really want to do is just lift up Monty Williams here. But, but the differences are, are striking. Uh, a couple weeks ago after the Super Bowl, we talked about um, losing with dignity. All right, that, that's losing a game with dignity. Now, how about losing the love of your life? How do you do that with dignity? You know, this is why youth sports are important. And this is why it's destructive when we uh, play these uh, politically correct games with, with sports, with games. You know, no winners, no losers, stuff like that. Like, we're, we're robbing kids of very valuable lessons. And one of the valuable life lessons that we're robbing kids by not keeping score and all the rest is how to lose. Because in life, you're going to lose. You're going to lose games and you're going to lose people and you're going to lose jobs and you're going to lose contests and you're going to lose dignity. You're going to lose a lot. But man, I hope I can react to it as, as, with as much grace and strength as, as Monty here. You know, John Wooden, who I think is the greatest coach of all time, he said, what you are as a person is far more important than who you are as a basketball player. We made a, uh, a video right after the Super Bowl uh, about Cam Newton and, and all that. And I think it's the most viewed video we've, we've ever put on Facebook. You can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook and scroll down a little bit ways you can see it. Um, and we quoted from a book. We just used a line from it. I want to quote a little longer if, you, if you'll allow me. Uh, the book is called It's a Good Old World. It's written by Bruce Barton in 1920, 100 years ago, and the lessons are still true. He starts off saying that Sir Walter Raleigh was the most attractive and impressive person 
in his time. This would be the early 1600s. But Sir Walter Raleigh made a fundamental mistake. He, quote, he picked out the wrong thing to live for. He decided that the most wonderful thing in life was fame and fortune. And he thought the best way to achieve those things was to be loved by Queen Elizabeth. So that's what he dedicated his life to doing, to be loved by Queen Elizabeth. And in the end, he was executed. Quote, every age has its quota of Sir Walter's strong men who trade their lives for this or that. And in the end, have traded themselves empty handed. Every age has its quota of Sir Walter's. So, so Bruce asks, what is that thing that can satisfy a man, not just in his youth, but for his entire life? What is such an object? Is it money? Bruce says, I wish that every young man in the world could see, as I saw once, a man who has bartered his soul for money and who woke up one morning to discover that it had vanished overnight. So surely a possession that can so quickly fly away and that leaves such shriveled souls behind it cannot be the supreme good. How about fame? Horace Greeley was as famous as any man in his period. He let his ambition carry him to the race for the presidency and losing the race died of a broken heart. So it's not fame. It's not money. And Bruce Barton says, look at, What Plato said, Plato said, looking to the truth, I shall endeavor to live as virtuously as I can. And I invite all other men and you too to this contest, which I affirm, which I believe surpasses all other contests. So the goal of life, it can't be fame. It can't be money. It's as Plato said to live virtuously as I can. And then Polycarp, he was a, uh, a bishop in the second century. He said, be diligent, be sober as God's athlete and stand like a beaten anvil. <laughs> Think of that image. I love it. Stand like a beaten anvil. And I'll end with this. Bruce said, I do not know any man who can stand like a beaten anvil who has only money to stand upon or only a reputation that may vanish as quickly as it came, or a ribbon that is pinned on his coat today and may be taken off tomorrow. I feel like Monty Williams there. Clearly, that's a man who is standing like a beaten anvil. But he's diligent, and he's sober as God's athlete, and he is standing as virtuously as anyone could dream of. Heard a great line the other day. Only love things that can love you back. 1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. 
By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on washing and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. You're listening to Mike Slater. Oh, this is very, very exciting. How are you, Slater? It's nice to be here. Uh, polls close at um, what are you guys? What is it? Eight? It's, I, I, it's always tricky whenever I see when the polls close because I don't know if that's local time or East Coast time. Like news is always East Coast. Time. Eight o'clock. Nevada closes at eight o'clock. I'm assuming that's uh, whatever time that would be. Mountain time or is it Pacific time? I have no idea what time. <laughs> what's what's Nevada? What what is Nevada? What time zone is Nevada? And I don't know. Results tonight. Um, Man, I hope Bernie wins. Oh, that'll be good. Oh, fantastic. I am rooting for Bernie Sanders big time. Is it so at eight o'clock Pacific? Is when Oh no no, what time do the polls close in uh in Nevada? Oh well it, but it's good to know it is Pacific. So I saw eight eight PM is what I saw, so I was assuming that was local time. So uh, so it stinks to be East Coast because that means 11 o'clock is when we get the final uh, final tally. Sorry about that. One of the best things about living in California um, is we, like, we're three hours behind and that actually helps in a lot of things like football. You wake up in the morning and football's on. Um, and sometimes there'll be like, you know, like whatever, uh, award shows or something or even Monday Night Football ends at like 1130 at night East Coast. I'm like, how does anyone stay up and watch this? Um, anyway, um, very excited for the uh, results tonight whenever they do come in. I do want to say one last thing about uh, Monty here, Monty Williams, that NBA coach. Um, that full, I should have said this, I'm sorry, the full eulogy is on our Facebook page. You can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook and listen to the whole thing uh, in all of its glory. Um, I have four minutes. I want, to, I want to read a poem. Can we do that? Can I read a poem? I know that's lame, but I think it's a good one. And what the heck, why not? We're a little calm before the storm on... Uh, South Carolina and Nevada. This is from Grantland Rice. Grantland Rice is a, or was a sports writer 100 years ago. He is the guy who came up with the line that everyone knows. For when the one great scorer comes to write against your name, he marks. Not that you won or lost, but how you played the game. That's the line we all, we've all heard of that. That's the end. That's the last line of a longer poem. And I think it's worth taking a second to read here because it's really good. It's the story of a guy named Bill Jones. But thought about Bill. Put your name there instead. It's a poem about you. It's a story about you. Bill was the best person on his college football team. And then he graduated. And he was ready to take on the real world. He was all fired up because he dominated the football team. And now he's ready to dominate life. And he got into the real world, but the real world didn't go so well for Bill. Some bill collectors came, some debt collectors came and beat him up. 
And then his old coach came back. Not literally, but the lessons he learned from the football field in college came back to him and he gave himself a little pep talk. So this isn't a poem about sports. It's it's a poem about the lessons that sports teach you about what's important in life. And I know that Monty Williams that we were were just playing, and I know he lives his life uh, by this, uh, by these principles, by the principles he learned in his case on the football, on the uh, basketball court. Anyway, the poem is called Alumnus Football. Bill Jones had been the shining star upon his college team. His tackling was ferocious and his bucking was a dream. When Husky Williams tucked the ball beneath his brawny arm, they had a special man to ring the ambulance alarm. Bill had the speed, Bill had the weight, the nerve to never yield. From goal to goal, he whizzed along while fragments strewed the field. And there had been a standing bet, which no one tried to call, that he could gain his distance through a 10-foot granite wall. When he wound up his college course, when he graduated, each student's heart was sore. They wept to think that Husky Bill would buck the line no more. Not so with William. In his dreams, he saw the field of fame where he could go buck to glory in the swirl of life's big game. All right, so everyone's upset he's graduating, but he's like, I'm, I'm fired up, fired, take on the real world. Sweet are the dreams of campus life. The world which lies beyond gleams ever in our inmost gaze with visions fair and fond. We see our fondest hopes achieved, and on with striving soul, we buck the line and run the ends until we reach the goal. So, with his sheepskin tucked beneath his brawny arm one day, Bill put on steam and dashed into the thickest of the fray. With eyes ablaze, he sprinted where the laureled highway led. But when Bill woke up with his scalp hung loose, there were knots that adorned his head. He tried to run the ends of life when low with vicious toss, a bill collector tackled him and threw him for a loss. And when he switched his course again and crashed into the line, the massive guard named Failure did a two-step on his spine. Bill tried to punt out of the rut. Like, so, so Bill Collector beat him up. He tried to punt out of the rut, but ere he turned the trick, Rick tackled competition, tumbled through, and blocked the kick. He couldn't get out of it no matter what he did. But one day when across the field of fame, the goal seemed dim when he was hopeless. The wise old coach experience came up and said to him, old boy, spoke he, the main point now before you win your bout is keep on bucking failure till you've worn the lobster out. Cut out this work around the ends. Go in there low and hard. Just put your eye upon the goal and start there yard by yard. And more than all, when you are thrown or tumbled with a crack, don't lie there whining. Hustle up and keep on coming back. Keep coming back for all they've got and take it with a grin. When disappointment trips you up or failure barks your shin, keep coming back. And if at last you lose the game, let those who whipped you know that at least they too have had a fight. You'll find the bread line hard to buck and fame's goal far away. But hit the line and hit it hard across each rushing play. For when the one great scorer comes to write against your name, he marks not that you've won or lost, but how you played the game. 
Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Seven o'clock Eastern tonight, South Carolina. Polls close. Eight o'clock Pacific in Nevada. So eleven o'clock Eastern. Nevada closes. So if you're early to bed, may not even know who uh, who wins the Democratic race in Nevada. Hope it's Bernie. Uh, I want to play a clip here from MSNBC. This is Joy Reid talking to a, a pastor who is a Ted Cruz supporter. This is in, uh, in South Carolina. I want to play uh, a little bit of Ted Cruz talking about how his faith would influence his decisions were he to be the president of the United States. Let's take a listen. A critical question is who do you trust on Supreme Court justices? We are one justice away from the Supreme Court mandating unlimited abortion on demand up till the moment of birth. And Pastor Gonzalez, what do you say to Americans who are more secular who say what we don't want is to have a president in in the White House who is essentially using his own personal faith to run the country uh, when the Constitution has a separation of church and state? All right, we got to stop there. We got to stop there. (laughs) Before we hear the pastor's answer, couple things here, Joy. Nowhere, nowhere, not a single place in the Constitution is there a separation of church and state clause. Does not exist. Does not exist. Joy Reid, I think she went to Harvard. You you think they'd teach that at Harvard? Sometime it would come up. I'm sure it comes up all the time at Harvard that it is there. You'd think one person would raise their hand. I don't think it's there. We look but i'm pretty sure it's it's not now it does say that congress is not allowed to pass a law that says there's an official religion of the country but it doesn't say that there can't be any religion in the country uh it says congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof here's what that meant to our founding fathers and and i dedicate this analysis here to uh, justice scalia because he would go back and, and look at our founding father's intent. What did the words mean to them when they wrote it? So at the time of the Constitution, there were 13 colonies. Seven of them had establishment churches. Seven of the 13 colonies had official state religions. Virginia, New York, Maryland, and South Carolina were Church of England. Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Connecticut were congregational. So these were the official religions of each colony. And this was true from the founding of these colonies um, in the 1600s and and in many of these states until the mid-1800s, 1850s, 1860s. They were the official religions of the states. So if each state, think about this, go back to 1780, right? If each state had their own establishment religion, And these states were going to come together and form a a national government, a federal government. Would the state want the federal government to have the power to declare a national 
religion? Of course not. Let's say you're someone in, uh, let's say you're in Maryland, right? And you're, uh, the state of Maryland's officially a Church of England state. You don't want to give this new federal government the power to make all of America a congregational st- a nation or a, a Presbyterian nation. You don't, you don't want the federal government to have that power because you are a Church of England state. You don't want a bunch of other states telling you in your state what religion you have to be. So there's no way that the states would give the federal government the power to make a, uh, a national religion. That's what, that, that's what that was. That's why that was put there. And just like the Church of England people in Maryland didn't want the federal government to tell them what to do. Same thing with uh, people in, let's say, Massachusetts who were congregational. They didn't want the federal government telling them that they couldn't be congregational. They now had to be Church of England or whatever. Makes sense, right? If you go back and put yourself in their shoes. Also, the second thing is the worry was that if the federal government favored one religion, then it would be unfair to the other religions. But but that does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that the president of the United States is not allowed to be a Christian. Or by that same standard, by the MSNBC standard, that the president can't be influenced by his Christian faith in any way. That is absurd. There's no way the Constitution, there's no way the Constitution says that no law should be influenced by religion or your, or a president's religious. That's absurd. Let's go back to one of the first bills passed by um, the new federal government would be the Northwest ordinance. It talked about is 1787 talked about how there are three things necessary to good government, three things, knowledge, morality, and religion. So stop with the secular nonsense. There's no way that our constitution even implies a separation of church and state. It is not there. But to Joy's main point, and I have a question for people who are listening who may be uh, secular. What makes you concerned about having a Christian man, someone who lives their Christian faith, and not just culturally Christian, but who really strives to live like Jesus, it tries their best every day. Why does that concern you, having that person in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the White House? What concerns you about that? What could that person do? <laughs> or, or how would their religion make them act that gives you alarm? I can't fathom. I've only been a Christian for a couple of years. Um, so I'm trying to go back just you know, five years, three years ago, four years ago. I don't think I was ever like, whoa, I can't have a Christian in the White House. Like, I, don't, like, I was never that. I don't, I don't know what the problem with that would be. Why would someone be concerned of a big bad Christian? Because if you're secular, and that's who Joy Reid is talking about, like what do you say to secular people in America who says we don't want someone who's using their own personal faith to run the country. You know what? Replace the word faith with moral code. Everyone has a moral code. That word's a lot less, um, it makes someone a lot less defensive if you were to use it. If you go up to someone and say, hey, let's talk about your faith. They'd be like, no, 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 no. But if you say, hey, let's talk about our moral codes. Okay. It's a little more palatable. And everyone has one. So I'll replace the word faith with moral code. So I'd say, Joy, I'd switch the question around. Joy, what do you say to people 
who don't want someone who uses their moral code to run the country. See how silly that question is? That's, but that's what Joyce said. Joyce said, what do, you, what do you say to people who don't want someone using their personal faith to run the country? I say, all right, Joyce, what do you say to someone who, uh, who's against a, a president using their own personal moral code to run the country? <laughs> it's absurd. Everyone has a moral code, and it influences them. Just like Ted Cruz, for instance, or Marco, or, or Ben Carson, three strong Christians. Um, they have their moral code. Influenced by their faith. What's scary about that? So here would be my answer. To anyone who is concerned about a Christian being president. A Christian has a moral code that is outlined in the good book very clearly. It's called the fruit of the spirit. Someone who lives their life like Jesus is someone who will show love, joy, peace, forbearance, which means tolerating an offense, uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5.22. Why are you, why are you concerned about that? Like, why, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't want someone who shows love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in the White House. I, I don't want anything to do with that. That's, that's bad news. That's a recipe for disaster. I'm, t- I'm pretty sure that we'd be better off if everyone in D.C. had a little more love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's think about the opposite of those things, right? Let's really dr- let's drive this home. What's the opposite of that? So the opposite of love is hatred, right? So do we want, you want someone in the White House who shows hatred? No, I can't be right. Um, joy, what's the opposite of joy? Anger? You want someone who shows anger? Uh, maybe forbearance, the opposite of forbearance. Maybe uh, um, uh, meanness, I guess. Bitterness, bitterness. Faithful, the opposite of faithfulness, I guess, hopelessness. Uh, someone who doesn't have self-control means they're out of control. Right? It seems like if I think about DC, it sounds like those are pretty good adjectives. A lot of hatred, anger, bitterness, meanness, hopelessness, and, and out of control power. <laughs> That's the problem. So I say, don't, don't, be, don't be scared. Uh, let's elect a man who has the fruit of the Spirit, which is just a proven moral code, if nothing else. I think that person would make the best kind of president. No? one 888 I want to take a break here. I'll come back with the pastor's answer. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. It's funny. Um... This is from uh, Dave in LA. Called him before. Said Slater, America is not a Christian nation. Stop trying to make it one. Oh, you want the founder's words, do you? And then he quoted uh, two. This is John Adams. The government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. John Adams. 
Um, all right. Do we have to do this? So that was a quote from a uh, treaty, the Treaty of Tripoli in 1791. Um, treaty of Tripoli against, of course, the uh, Muslims in the Barbary states. Uh, that was purely said uh, to appease the Muslims in that area. Basically, to have them stop uh, pirating our ships. <laughs> uh, so that, 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 that was just to shut them up. Um, clearly, that was not John Adams' uh, uh, true beliefs on, on America, because I can back that up with a thousand other John Adams quotes. So there's no cherry picking allowed here, Dave. Uh, and then the other one is uh, from James Madison. Religion and government will both exist in greater purity the less they are mixed together. So uh, what that is, is James Madison saying government should not be involved with religion. Again, he says religion and government will both exist in greater purity the less they are mixed together. He's saying government shouldn't be forcing their way into religious life. Not that religion shouldn't have an influence on someone's political beliefs. See the difference there? So that goes back to where the separation of church and state line came from in the first place. And it was the Danbury Baptists in Connecticut who wrote a letter to the new president, Thomas Jefferson. And they were worried. The Baptists were worried that the new president would impose government on their religion by requiring them to do this, forcing them to do this, not allowing them to do this or the other. They were worried that, as James Madison was saying, that government would impose itself on their religion. And that's when Thomas Jefferson wrote back and said, no, 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 don't worry. Don't worry, Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut. There's a separation of church and state here. I'm not going to force you to do anything. I'm not going to impose anything on you. You're free to, to practice your religion any way that you, you like. And I'm sure he would have uh, echoed James Madison's uh, sentiment that religion and government both exist in greater purity the less they're mixed together. So no, no, I'm not going to impose government on your religion, Danbury Baptists. You guys keep doing your thing. I'm not going to impose myself. But again, to take that and suggest that your religion, your faith, your moral code uh, should in no way influence your thought process and your thinking and your decision making. Uh, I mean, that's ludicrous. And it's ludicrous because everyone has a moral code. So Dave in L.A., who's writing, who just wrote Stop Lying About the Constitution and Our Founders, um, Dave has a moral code. It's based off something. Everyone has a moral code. So if Dave were president, I would never say, whoa, Dave, don't use your moral code when making decisions. Because it is, I mean, that's how he makes decisions, how we all make decisions. Uh Oh, 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 this is good. He quoted Ben Franklin. He said, Ben Franklin was horrified by the Salem witch trials. He moved to Pennsylvania to escape religious persecution. Yeah, sure. Everyone was horrified by the Salem witch trials. Uh, Oh, I got a minute. Good. Um, when do we got? 55.50? Is that right? Okay. So Ben Franklin, every day, every week, he, or every day, he carried a book with him. And on every page, there was a chart. And it was every day of the week. And then on the other, the other uh, on the, the column side, were 13 different virtues. And every day, at the end of the day, he would reflect on the day. And if he did not exhibit that virtue, he would... Um, Mark out the box. And at the end of the week, he'd look and, he'd, and the goal was to have as few box, boxes marked as possible. And there were 13 virtues. Uh, I go through them fast. Um, 
Temperance, silence, order, resolution, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity. These are all biblical principles. Now that's only 12 if you were counting. There's one more. The 13th virtue of Ben Franklin that he wanted to live every day was humility. And his description of what the definition of humility? Imitate Jesus. Oh yeah, he wanted nothing to do with Christianity. You're right, Dave. one 93 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Dr. Carson, how do you reconcile the differences between traditional Christian values, specifically caring for the least of these, and current GOP stances on social issues such as welfare and subsidies for the poor? Well, when you say current GOP, um, I'm part of the GOP, and let me tell you what my stance is. My stance is that we, the people, have the responsibility to take care of the indigent in our society. It's not the government's job. And uh, if you can read the Constitution all you want, it never says that it is the government's job, and I think that's where we've gotten confused. In the old days of America, when communities were separated by hundreds of miles, uh, why were they able to thrive? Because if it was harvest time and the farmer was up in the tree picking apples and he fell out and broke his leg, everybody pitched in and harvested his crops for him. If somebody got killed by a bear, everybody took care of their family. So we have a history of taking care of each other. Now, for some strange reason, starting sort of in the 20s with Woodrow Wilson, the government started getting involved in everything. It kept growing, metastasizing. By the time we got to the 60s, LBJ was saying... We, the government, are going to eliminate poverty. Now, how'd that work out? You know, $19 trillion later, 10 times more people on food stamps, more poverty, more welfare, broken homes, out-of-wedlock births, crime, incarceration. Everything is not only worse, it's much worse. And that's because it's not their job, it's our job. I wish the government would read the Constitution. I think that would probably help quite a bit. Uh, And maybe they did read it, and maybe they got confused when they read the preamble, which says one of the duties is to promote the general welfare. They probably thought that meant putting everybody on welfare. But in (laughs) fact, (laughs) I don't think it means that at all. And what we need to do is Um, level the plan. That is uh, Ben Carr. It was Ben Carr. a couple days ago at the CNN town hall that they had. Uh, Excellent answer. Uh, But I want to focus on this question, see what you think about it, how you would answer it. Very simply, so the question is, how do you reconcile the differences between the Christian value of caring for the least of these and conservative principles? How do you reconcile the differences between those two things? And my answer is, it's very simple. There is no reconciling the differences between Christian values and conservatism. There is no reconciling the differences between taking care of the least of these and conservatism because they're the same. There's, no, there's nothing to reconcile. 
The Bible says, take care of the least of these. Conservatism says, take care of the least of these. Those are the exact same commands. (laughs) There is nothing to reconcile. Now, I left out a word. I I should add a word here. I'm sorry. The Bible says, you go take care of the least of these. And conservatism says, you go take care of the least of these. Those are the exact same. It's incredibly important. This woman's question is based on a false premise. It's based on a false premise that says, conservatism says, don't take care of people. So therefore, how do you reconcile conservatism, which says don't take care of people, and the Bible, which says do take care of people? How do you reconcile? No, no, no. You, you have a misunderstanding of what conservatism is. Conservatism says go take care of the least of these. Um, you know this, but the, the Bible that the Bible verse that she's talking about is uh, Matthew 25, and, and it's judgment day. And God says, you people, you go over there, and, and you people, you, you go over, over there. And he picks someone out of the first group, and he says, you fed me when I was hungry. And you gave me a drink when I was thirsty and you gave me a place to stay when I needed a place to stay. And that person says, what? When did I ever see you hungry, God? When did I ever see you thirsty? And God says, when you did it to one of the least of these, you were doing it to me. Congratulations, you're going to heaven. And then he takes someone from the other group of people and says, yeah, hey, what's up? You didn't feed me when I was hungry. And that person says, what? When did I see you hungry? (laughs) I didn't see. God, if I saw you hungry, I totally would have fed you. I promise you. If I saw you and you needed a place to stay and you said, hi, I'm God. I need a place to stay. I would have given you my, my spare bedroom, God. I promise you. I never saw you hungry. And God says, you didn't feed these hungry people. And when you refused to help the least of these, you were refusing to help me. And you go to hell. So, that's what uh, that that woman was uh, referring to. It's the short of it. Uh, the, the, the the short the short uh, uh, brief brief version there. Um, so the, again, the woman is wondering how do you reconcile that message with conservatism? But again, the false premise. The premise here is that conservatism says don't go help people, but no, that's wrong. The conservatism says, you go help the least of these. It's the exact same message. It's progressivism that needs the reconciling. Because when the Bible says, you go help the least of these, it's progressivism that says, you, eh, don't worry about it. Someone else will take care of it. The Bible says, you go help those who are hungry. And progressivism says, yeah, don't worry. You don't need to do it. All you need to do is vote for me. I'll take money from someone else. And then we'll put hungry people on food stamps. So you yourself, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to worry about it. There's some reconciling that needs to go on there between what the Bible says and what the progressive mentality is. That's what needs to be reconciled. The you go. That's the part. You go. So listen, it's not about um, Dave in LA who's... um, tweeting me here about how we're not a Christian country or whatever. Um, but someone who, who truly believes in welfare and that that's the best way to help people. 
please talk to me about the, the you go part, right? Of the Bible. You, you go feed the least of these. Go feed hungry people. You go do it. That's the key. Imagine that scene from Matthew 25 again. At that final judgment day. And God says, you did not feed me when I was hungry. And the person says, whoa, whoa, wait a second, God. I totally voted for someone who promised me that they would take money from other people and give it to hungry people for food stamps. Like, I absolutely voted for, for this guy who said he's going to raise taxes and then increase the amount of people on food stamps. Now, I don't know, but I have to imagine that God's going to say, no, no, that doesn't count. I told you to feed people who are hungry. I didn't tell you to vote for someone who says they'll do it on your behalf. You need to sacrifice your time and money and energy to feed people. I didn't tell you to outsource that responsibility to someone else. Because when you give, when you participate in a, in a charitable act of any kind, there's two people involved in it. The person receiving, they benefit, but the person giving does as well. And welfare severs that transaction. And it breaks up bonds. It breaks up communities. It breaks up families. It's progressivism that needs to reconcile. Keep an ear out for this. When you hear um, any any fault, see the way she worded that, it was kind of tricky. You had to be really listening for this. But reject any premise that says conservatism says don't help the poor. Conservatism says you must help the poor. And of course, we'll do a better job of it than the government anyway. one 988 one I wrote that out, wrote out a shorter version of all this on, uh, on our Facebook page. Um, you can search for it on the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Please share it just like a paragraph or so uh, and get that word out there and get other people to really listen carefully uh, for false premises like that one. I want to come back with uh, an exchange from the last debate, which I think was really powerful. We had a debate viewing party here in San Diego uh, last Saturday for Saturday's debate. So it was awesome. I loved it because there was all these different parts when people would laugh or groan or boo or whatever and we'd stop it and we'd talk about it and it was great. It was an instant focus group that we had throughout it. So I want to highlight a couple of the really powerful moments from the 50 people that I watched it with. And there were, um, there was, there was a John Kasich supporter. I think there were two Kasich supporters. So it's a very diverse group, uh, within the Republican party as well, which is extra fascinating. So we'll talk about that coming up next. Mike Slater show the blaze radio network spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the blaze radio network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Our early results coming in from Nevada. We have, oh, wait, wait, it just changed. Oh, it just changed from three seconds ago. Oh, man, I was so excited. Clinton, 887 votes. Bernie Sanders, 873. It's a 14-vote difference. Hillary Clinton is up right now. 
Uh, it's a caucus. So if they tie, remember in Iowa, if there was a caucus site and there was a tie, then they would flip a coin. And Hillary, th- through witchcraft, won all six coin flips. Like what, what does it have a, a one, 1.5% chance of winning six coin flips in a row? She won all of them. Um, and if she won, if Bernie won three of them and she, and Hillary won three, then Bernie would have won the Iowa caucuses. Crazy. So in Nevada, they don't do a coin flip. They uh, cut the deck. So they, every, every precinct has a deck of cards and they have someone, I don't know, precinct leader for each side, uh, pick a card and whoever has the high card wins, which is very Nevada. So uh, hopefully it doesn't come down to that. Hopefully Bernie wins in a landslide. Uh, so I want to chat a little bit about the last debate, the uh, Republican debate. I loved watching it. It was great. We watched it with a bunch of people here. There were uh, about 50 people here at the at my local station here, local uh, TV and radio station. We had a little debate viewing party. Really great to watch with everyone because we had an instant focus group going. And when people booed or cheered or whatever, we could stop and, and, and chat about it for a while. I learned a lot. It was really exciting. Uh, next time we do it, we're going to... Uh, stream it and we're gonna have it uh, available to watch after too because it was that entertaining uh but i want to play this exchange right here and talk about why trump did this here it is you've been elected president it's your first day in the situation room what three questions do you ask your national security experts about the world what we want to do when we want to do it and how hard do we want to hit because we are going to have to hit very, very hard to knock out ISIS. We're going to also have to learn who our allies are. We have allies, so-called allies. We're spending billions and billions of dollars supporting people. We have no idea who they are in Syria. Do we want to stay that route, or do we want to go and make something with Russia? I hate to say Iran, but with Russia, because we made in the Iran deal, it's one of the worst deals I've ever seen negotiated in my entire life. It's a disgrace that this country negotiated that deal. But very important, (laughs) not only a disgrace, it's a disgrace and an embarrassment, but very important, who are we fighting with? Who are we fighting for? What are we doing? We have to rebuild our country, but we have to, I'm the only one on the stage that said, do not go into Iraq. Do not attack Iraq. Nobody else on this stage said that, and I said it loud and strong, and I was in the private sector. I wasn't a politician, fortunately. But I said it, and I said it loud and clear. You'll destabilize the Middle East. That's exactly what happened. I also said, by the way, four years ago, three years ago, attack the oil. Take the wealth away. Attack the oil and keep the oil. They didn't listen. They just started that a few months ago. Senator Rubio. All right, let's take a pause right here. Can we pause it? So everyone in the audience, there are 50 people, and there were only, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40% of the people in our in our 50-person group um, were Trump supporters, maybe even less than that, maybe like maybe 20 of the 50 actually. Um, everyone loved that answer. Three questions you would ask on your first day as president when it comes to foreign policy. His answer is, what do we want to do? When do we want to do it? How hard do we want to hit him? Okay, that is a strong, powerful, concise answer. Now I want to play the, the, the rest of uh, the Rubio's answer here. Just, I'm just talking about optics here. We're not talking about policy per se. Just the optics, and you wonder why Trump's going to win so much in um, in South Carolina today and in Nevada. It's because of this. It's because of how he can. The optics, how he says things. Uh, so, 
focus on the strength of what Trump just did there. What are we going to do? When are we going to do it? How hard are we going to hit him? Versus Rubio's answer here. Just uh, 30 seconds on this question, Senator Rubio. Are those the questions you would ask? No, I think there are three major threats that you want to immediately get on top of. Number one is, what are we doing in the Asia-Pacific region, where both North Korea and China pose threats to the national security of the United States? Number two is, what are we doing in the Middle East with a combination of the Sunni-Shia conflict driven by the Shia arc that Iran is now trying to establish in the Middle East, and also the growing threat of ISIS? And the third is rebuilding and reinvigorating NATO in the European theater, particularly in Central Europe and in Eastern Europe, where Vladimir Putin is now threatening the the territory of multiple countries, already controls 20 percent of Georgia and a significant percentage of Ukraine. Let me ask you a Okay, so we watched it up there. So we watched it with, again, 50 people. And I stopped it right there. I said, all right, hold on. Because that was a Trump and Rubio right next to each other. They each answered the same question. I said, who won that exchange right there? Every single hand went up for Donald Trump. Every single hand. Why? It was strong. It was concise. Now, general, right? No details at all. But that doesn't matter in this format. It's strong and concise. Rubio was incredibly specific, but verbose and boring. Strong and concise will beat verbose and boring every time. Every single time. So Trump says, oh, my three questions. What do we want to do? When do we want to do it? How hard do we want to hit him? Rubio's was, oh, uh, we're going to talk about the Asia-Pacific region and uh, the Shia Shia, Sunni arc and uh, rebuilding and reinvigorating NATO in the European theater. Like, oh, my gosh, like that is (laughs) such a no great answer. So boring. And it's the craziest thing. Now, you've been listening long enough. You know, I wish that that answer would win. I wish that people are like, oh, yes, tell me more about reinvigorating the NATO um, allies in the European theater. And it's wild because these last few elections, I feel like we've been demanding more and more out of the people who are running, right? I want more specifics. I want more details. I want more proof that you know what you're doing and that you say what you're going to do so that we can hold you accountable. And then Trump comes in, gives no specifics, and people love it. He knows what people like. Always has. There was a lot of controversy and one other thing that Trump said. Uh, we're not going to play this clip. You, you remember it. It's when he talked about 9-11 and how uh, the towers came down under George Bush's watch. Again, 50 people at this viewing party, everyone booed. No one liked it. Even the Trump supporters. No one liked when Trump brought up 9-11 and blamed Bush, essentially. Why did he do that? Everything he does is purposeful. There's a reason for everything. It's all calculated. He did it because it wasn't for you. So the 50 people who were in that room were all Republicans. That comment that Trump made about 9-11, it wasn't for any of those Republicans. Now, the Trump supporters, they're going to vote for Trump no matter what he does, no matter what he says. That comment about 9-11 was for Democrats and it was for independents. Why? Because South Carolina is an open primary. In South Carolina, you can vote for the Republican candidate. Even if you're a registered Democrat or if you're not registered at all, if you're an independent or a Green Party or whatever, you can now you can only vote in one primary. You have to pick one, but you can vote in any primary you want. So if there's some old blue dog Democrat holdovers in, in South Carolina or there's a bunch of independents, a lot of those people don't like George W. Bush. They don't like they didn't like the Iraq war. Trump was appealing to them. 
And if he can pick off, again, no, no, no Trump supporter is going to leave Trump, no matter what he says. Remember he said a couple weeks ago, he said I could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue and people would still support me. Like he, That's true, I think. But if he can pick off 2 3% of the Democrats, a couple independents here and there, then you just uh, picked up five percentage points with that comment. That's why he did that. We'll see you in a few hours, if it worked. one 93 But again, strength and power uh, will beat verbose and boring every time. Strong and concise. Details be darned. one 93 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Was this a good day, if you like, for Donald Trump to have the president kind of going after him like this? Well, Trump's interesting, uh, and his supporters are interesting, too. The more you go after Trump, the more the Trump supporters defend their support of Trump. So that'll only make Trump uh, stronger. One thing that's interesting in South Carolina is they have open primaries. So you don't need to register with a party in order to vote for either of the two parties. And one of the most interesting things about the last debate is when Trump attacked George W. Bush for 9-11. And I was with about 50 other Republicans when that happened, and they viscerally were angry at that. They really were offended that Trump blamed W for um, 9-11. But what's interesting about that is it wasn't for Republicans, that comment, because the Trump supporters, like I said, are always going to support Trump no matter what he says. He even said that a couple weeks ago. Remember, he said, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and people would still support me. And I think he's right. That comment about 9-11 was for independents and maybe even some Democrats who don't like the Iraq war and who don't like W. They in South Carolina can vote in the Republican primary for Trump. I think he's just gaining support with comments like that. Part of the next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. That's pretty much what we said in the last segment. That was uh, CNN, I don't know, Wednesday night, Thursday night maybe. Um, that's on our Facebook page, the full video there. on uh, Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Thanks for being here. Uh, exciting day today. We'll find out what happened in a couple hours here. Uh, so we kicked off the show, and I apologize. I got Oh, we lost Tiffany? Oh, I was just going to go to Tiffany. Oh, my goodness gracious. Tiffany, call back in, because I also got a tweet here from BJ, and I apologize. I never followed through on my promise. Um Tiffany was from South Carolina, too, so I wanted to ask her how terrible it must be to be there this week. <laughs> Once every four years, South Carolina, Iowa, New Hampshire, it just must be the worst place on the planet. I would never pick up my phone. If you have a landline in South Carolina, why would you ever pick it up? You'd have to unplug it, right? It sounds awful. Um, so my question earlier, well, it, was, it wasn't mine. Joy Reid uh, from MSNBC um, she was talking to a, a Ted Cruz supporter who is a pastor, so a pastor who supports Ted Cruz in South Carolina. And her question was, um, actually, can you, um, Flip, can you play the be- beginning of clip 240? I just want to hear a question. I want to play uh, a little bit of Ted Cruz talking about how his faith would influence his decisions were he to be the president of the United States. Let's take a listen. A critical question is who do you trust on Supreme Court justices? We are one justice away from the Supreme Court mandating unlimited abortion on demand up till the moment of birth. 
And Pastor Gonzalez, what do you say to Americans who are more secular who say what we don't want is to have a president in, in the White House who is essentially using his own personal faith to run the country uh, when the Constitution has a separation of church and state? Okay, so that was the question. So Tiffany wanted to, to comment on that because after that, the, the first um, couple of segments of the show, we talked about, uh, I asked a very honest question to um, secular people. Um, what is the problem if we had a Christian in the White House? Like, what's the concern? Genuinely, what's the concern of that? Um, I don't know. So I'm a Christian now. I, I wasn't, I've been a Christian for two and a half years. Um, so I'm trying to think to three year ago, Mike Slater, or 10 year ago, Mike Slater. Would I have cared if there were a Christian in the White House? I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I don't, so I don't know what the concern of that would be. So that, that was my honest question, and Tiffany had an answer for it. So Tiffany, if you're still listening now, I'd love for you to, to call back in. Um, so the problem is I never played the pastor's answer, so I apologize. Here's uh, clip 241. Here's the, the question again and, and the, the pastor's answer. Well, the reality of it is, is this idea of the separation of church and state is a myth. I mean, you bring your faith into the marketplace just like you do anything else. And so uh, Ted Cruz is a, will be a president, not just, you know, who is a preacher or a pastor in the White House. That's not the idea. But I believe that all people, all Americans can rally around Ted Cruz because he upholds the Constitution. And I believe all Americans want to truly uphold the law. Uh-huh. Well, let, let me just push back on you a little bit because the, the separation of church and state is in fact not a myth. It's actually a constitutional fact. Like it's a fact on the ground. It's a part of our constitutional makeup. Uh, the founding fathers were very explicit that they did not want to have a national church. So can a candidate like Ted Cruz run on essentially saying he would ignore that part of the Constitution uh, if you're saying he's the president who would actually run on the Constitution. Well, what I'm saying is that the Constitution upholds our First Amendment rights. Ted Cruz is practicing that. He's not violating that. And so uh, the idea that he would do anything else but really follow the law and the Constitution, uh, I mean, it's just not true. He's going to do that. Our faith is a vital part to our lives. But that doesn't mean that he's in the White House preaching uh, you know, all of the time he's going to be doing that while he's the president, but it's his faith. It's who he is. You can't separate him. I mean, it's like when you scramble eggs, you can't unscramble them. And, uh, but that's the reality. Our constitution gives us, you know, our religious rights and our religious freedoms. You can't take that away. So I think, I think that's a really good answer on the spot. Uh, it's a tough, tough question just because it's, um, it's, 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 not based in reality. And again, Joy there saying, uh, I don't want to go into the whole thing again, but church, church, separation of church and state is nowhere in the Constitution. Um, she says that our founders were explicit that they didn't want a national church. That's true. But the reason that our founders didn't want a national church is because the states had their own official churches. Seven of the 13 states had their own official churches already. Um, so they didn't want a national one to impose on their state church, which is a far cry from... No religion ever. Right? Uh, so I think the pastor did a good job there. But isn't it interesting? Let's just back it up for a second. Oh, is Tiffany back? Oh, let's go to Tiffany here in South Carolina. Tiffany, how are you today? I'm doing great, Mike. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you for, for calling back. I, uh, before we get to your, your question and comment, um, tell us what's going on in South Carolina now. Like, it, it must be really like you're just inundated with commercials and phone calls and all the rest and door knocking. Do you like that or is it horrible? <laughs> Actually, I haven't been inundated at all, and I, I pretty much stay on Blaze Radio or uh, other talk radio shows of that same caliber. 
Uh, so I don't get too many people that are bothering me. Nice. Thank good for you then. Whew, it sounds, I, I thought there were people knocking on my door 10 times a day and calling me all day. I'd, I'd move out for the week. Um, so what's on your mind, Tiffany? I wanted to respond to the question that was asked earlier about why people are reluctant to, uh, to elect um, Christians to, uh, to government positions. And I've been yes. talking to some of my, my colleagues about a candidate that I'm very, very partial to because, frankly, I think it's uh, the first candidate I've seen in a number of years who really, really would do an excellent job. But the comments I've been getting from from my colleagues is that they that he is a Christian and they don't feel that he would be um, tough enough on some of our enemies. You must be um, speaking like, of Donald Trump. The the true deep Christian that you like so much is Donald Trump, right? No, it actually is not. I think Donald that, Trump is a rival. <laughs> that, that was my that was my sarcasm. Sorry if that didn't come across uh, from San Diego to South Carolina. Oh, that was obvious. Sorry. That was definitely sarcasm. No, continue on, Tiffany. I apologize. Actually, I loved it because it allowed me to get in my comment uh, that I think he's a rhino. But anyway, <laughs> to get back to my my uh, my comment, um, just because someone is a Christian has uh, a, a strong set of ethical standards, moral standards, does not necessarily mean that he's soft on uh, people like ISIS. Uh, he would be more than happy to blow them straight back to the hot place they came from. I don't see anything in my Bible that says that that's not allowed. No. Um, that's interesting. I've never heard that. So you said your coworkers have talked about that. They think a Christian commander-in-chief would be weak, would have a weak foreign policy, essentially. Um, that he would be reluctant uh, hmm. to, to enter into a, a, a conflict where he would have to order somebody to die. Uh, I don't see that that's a problem. There were enemies, uh, uh, many people in, in the Bible, many of the Bible stories that we hear about, there were enemies, and God told them how to go out and defeat them. Yeah. So the, the, we, were, we were never told, don't fight your enemies. We were never told, don't go to war. Um, and the biggest problem that people are concerned about right now is ISIS and the influx of Muslim terrorists in this country, and they're concerned about that. They don't think a truly strong uh, Christian candidate, and we do have one that's a very strong Christian candidate, uh, but he speaks very quietly and carries a big stick, would yeah. be reluctant to, um, to go after them. And absolutely not. I think that would be the first thing he would do. And Tiffany, he would, in fact, blow them straight to wherever they came from. Tiffany, thank you so much for calling and for sharing that. I have never heard that before. I think there's absolutely truth to that. And I'm going to do a lot more studying on that. I'm going to do some more research on that and more study so I can have a good answer to that. Um, but I think that's excellent. Thank you, Tiffany, for sending that over. My, my first two thoughts are... Um, these are premature. I'm going to come, I'm come back with, with more next week. Um, but the, the commandment is thou shalt not murder, not thou shalt not uh, kill, which is different. Uh, but the bigger point is meek. It says the meek shall inherit the earth, not the weak. The meek. They rhyme, but they're not the same word. A lot of words rhyme. doesn't mean they're the same. There's the, the, the meek, M-E-E-K, shall inherit the earth. And meekness is strength under control. Not weakness. Exactly. We have this, uh, we, right? We have this interpretation of Jesus with a baby lamb and like, oh, soft, you know, hanging. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's that's not Jesus. Jesus was a warrior um, in so many ways: brave, courageous, strong, powerful. Um, always stood up for what was right. Obviously, and one of my favorite memes is 
Um, when someone says, what would Jesus do? Uh, just know that fashioning a whip and flipping tables is within the realm of possibility. Uh, so that, that a true Christian doesn't mean you're a weak person. Uh, Tiffany, that's wonderful. Give me some more time and I'll come back with a better answer for you. Sounds, sounds great, Mike. Have a blessed week. Thank you, uh, Tiffany. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I've never heard that before. Hmm. Thoughtful, Tiffany. Thank you. Um, I got, I got one minute. Let me do this real quick. So I mentioned earlier the 13 virtues of Ben Franklin. So he carried a book with, with him and every week or on every page, there was a chart and on the top of the chart, it was um, every day of the week and going down the, the side were different virtues, 13 different virtues and it would create a chart and every day he would reflect on his day and if he would violate the virtue, he would fill in the box and the goal was at the end of the week to have no more or to have no filled in boxes, right? He wanted to live a a pure, clean, virtuous life. So I I got a minute here. I think it's worth reading through all these. Uh, Temperance. So these are Ben Franklin's 13 virtues. Temperance. Eat not to dullness. Drink not to elevation. Don't eat or drink too much. I like that. Eat not to dullness. So don't get the itis. You know, when you eat too much, like, whoa. whoa. Uh, Number two, silence. Speak not but what may, what may benefit others or yourself, avoid trifling conversation. For instance, just a couple minutes ago, Dave in Los Angeles said, uh, he wrote me on Twitter, um, Jesus would help black people in Ferguson. Would you? Maybe. Would a lot of Christian conservatives? Heck no. So I politely responded, Dave, been great talking to you, uh, but if you really believe that, then uh, I think it's best we just... just uh, End our conversation for now, and I hope you have a great weekend. I genuinely do. Um, so that, that, that's in the silence category. Uh, order. Let all your things have their place. Let each part of your business have its time. Resolution. Resolve to perform what you ought and perform without fail what you resolve. Frugality. Make no expense, but to do good to others or yourself. So don't waste. Waste nothing. Industry. Lose no time. Be always employed in something useful. Sincerity, use no hurtful deceit. Think innocently and justly, and if you speak, speak accordingly. So which candidate do you think has has these virtues? Justice, wrong none by doing injuries. Moderation, avoid extremes. Cleanliness, tolerate no uncleanliness in body, clothes, or habitation. My wife will tell me I need to work on that one. Tranquility. Do not be disturbed at trifles or at accidents common or unavoidable. Chastity. Rarely use ven- venery, but for health or offspring. That's, that's sex. Never to dullness, weakness, or the injury of your own or another's peace or reputation. And then finally, humility. Imitate Jesus. Those are the 13 virtues. I think it is important that we look at policy naturally, of course, but which candidate exhibits these 13 virtues and maybe even more than anything, which one really deliberately will strive to achieve these every day. That's important too. one 888 I'll come back with a better answer for you, Tiffany. Wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, point. Mike Slater show the blaze radio network. Spread the word. You're listening to 
Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, uh, the reason uh, I'm punting uh, on a better answer for Tiffany is, uh, first of all, it's been a while since I've read C.S. Lewis's essay, uh, Why I'm Not a Pacifist. Wrote it during World War II. It's wonderful. Uh, so I want to re- recap, that, recap that. Also, my uh, men's group, there is a, uh, my buddy is NCIS, two of them. Uh, we have two Marines and a Navy SEAL. Just because we're in San Diego, so there's a lot of that here. Um, so these guys have really—it's not an academic argument for these guys. Like they're deeply Christian, and you know, a Navy SEAL or whatever, um, and NCIS and all the rest. So they—they've really struggled through that, like that—that that concept of Christianity and strength, right? Um, and maybe even killing and all the rest. They've really worked through that. So I want to talk to them next week and um, report back. Um, what do we have coming up next? There was a, mm, let's do Supreme Court. Let's move on from this. We'll do a Supreme Court moment. Uh, I want to play a clip from uh, our CNN appearance uh, to come out with. And also a nice little story about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Scalia. I think uh, we can model their relationship in a lot of ways. We'll do it next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, this is bizarre. Flip's telling me that. Are you, are you, are you sure, Flip? You're saying Fox News says that Hillary wins Nevada. I don't believe that. My, my, I, none of the TVs work. That's, <laughs> I don't get that at all. I don't have any TVs on in here. I apologize. I'm not my normal studio. Um, what the heck? I mean, the caucus doesn't end until 8 o'clock. It's 2 o'clock Pacific time. So we got, we got six hours. What, how can you call it out? It's not even, not even done. Uh, that sounds odd. I don't believe you. Plus, I really wanted Bernie, so I don't want to believe you. Uh, I'm on all the websites. None of the websites are calling it yet. Hmm. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Um, I want to chat about, uh, some Supreme Court stuff here for a second. So I was on CNN the other day. We were talking about the Supreme Court. Let me pull up this text again. So yeah, so let me. This is the text I got from a buddy of mine right when I was uh, right when I got off. Um, hey, dude, good job tonight. Get some rest. You look a little beat. How are you feeling? <laughs> what? Thanks a lot, jerk. Hey, Slater, really great job on CNN. Man, you said some really really great stuff. But man, you look like you fell off the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down. You, you gotta, you need like plastic surgery. You look horrible. But hey, man, great job. Really, really enjoyed uh, what you had to say. <laughs> oh, all right, cool. Uh, it's on our Facebook page. You can see how horrible I look. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. 
I was uh, talking to my mom right before we went on CNN. And so she, my mom loves Obama and loves Hillary. And she said, you Republicans, you don't think that the president should be allowed to nominate someone for the Supreme Court. And I said, what? I always like to check in with my mom about, and she can tell me what Republicans think or what what conservatives think. Uh, she says, you don't, or says, you're all about following the Constitution, but you don't think the president should be allowed to nominate someone in his last year. I said, who thinks that? And th- this is sort of how it's gone. I, and I mean this genuinely. Even in the very beginning, did you hear anyone say that the president shouldn't be allowed to nominate someone? That, now, that's very different than the president, like the, the, like the Senate shouldn't um, confirm who the president appoints. But I've never heard anyone say that the president shouldn't be allowed to nominate someone. That's ridiculous. Um, anyway, that's what we talked about on, on CNN. I was never under that illusion. I don't think any, maybe, I don't, maybe someone said, it. I don't think anyone said it. Anyway, just to clear the record, of course he should nominate someone. He has every right to do that until his very last day in office. But under that same constitution, the Republicans have every right to not confirm the president's choice. And that's checks and balances. That's not a bug in the system. That's a feature of it. So I want to throw out a scenario here. Just so you can put it in your back pocket and, and maybe it's maybe it will be relevant later. As we get closer to this election, if it looks like Hillary is going to win, then maybe the Senate should confirm the president's nominee. Here's what I mean. Uh, imagine a scale one to 10, uh, 10 being su- a super progressive nominee, like off the charts progressive. The president obviously wants to nominate a 10, but there's a Republican Senate. So that's not going to pass. That's why we have this real quick. Let me do a timeout. I'm sorry. Let me go back in time a second. We'll get back to this. The advise and consent model was debated at the constitutional convention. James Madison, he proposed a different process for selecting a nominee. He proposed the president picks whoever he wants, and that person's automatically in the Supreme Court. And if the Senate doesn't like it, then they can get a majority of votes to take that person off the Supreme Court within a certain amount of time. Right? That was his proposal. And the rest of the founding fathers said, no, 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 no. That gives too much power to the president. If, you just, if the president can just nominate someone and they're automatically in, that's too much power to the president. Uh, so that's why they came to the advise and consent model. The president nominates. It's up to the Senate. They're the final gatekeeper on whether or not a justice gets in or not. But it's interesting to know that there was a debate about how to do that. And they came to this conclusion for a very specific reason, because they wanted the checks and balances to be there. So again, this is not a, the, the fact that there's a Republican Senate and a, uh, Democratic president and the Democratic president can't do whatever he wants or at, as much as he wants. That's the point. That's the point of checks and balances. So anyway, back to this situation. The president, of course, wants to nominate a 10. But he can't get that through a Republican Senate. So let's say he could get through a 6 on the progressive scale. So pretty progressive, but, but not terribly so. Now, I don't think the Senate should nominate that person, should confirm that person either. But if we get closer to the election and it looks like Hillary's in the lead and it looks like she's going to win, 
Uh-oh. Because if she wins, then she's going to nominate a 10 on the progressive scale. And then even if there's a Republican Senate, they're going to have to confirm uh, that justice or some, some pretty extreme justice. So maybe there's a scenario where the Republicans do nominate an Obama justice because the Obama justice might be more moderate than the potential Hillary justice. So we'll see. Tuck that scenario back uh, in, in your back pocket. It may come up uh, in the next couple months here. Now, in the meantime, I have a little insight here from Jonah Goldberg this morning or this uh, afternoon. Do you remember a couple weeks ago? I think he did it a couple times, actually. So maybe in a couple weeks ago, maybe in a couple months ago, too. The president said that his greatest regret was that he did not reduce the polarization and meanness in our politics. Remember that? I know I would argue, and I, I think you'd agree, that things have become more divisive in the last seven years. And one could argue that he, the president, has demonized and marginalized Republicans in these last seven years. Oh, Slater, give me an example. I don't know. Remember when he compared Republicans in Congress to the hardliners in Iran? So that would be uh, terrorists. Awesome. It's helpful. But either way, even if you don't want to blame him, uh, I believe things have become more divisive and mean. So, Mr. President, this is your second chance. We have a God of second chances. This could be the most polarizing and mean battle, political battle in our lifetimes. Could be. Give you an example. Within 48 hours of the justice passing, there's a New York Times editorial writer who wrote on Twitter, In a nation built on slavery, white men propose denying the first black president his constitutional right to name Supreme Court nominee. That is a New York Times editorial writer. Within 48 hours, in a nation built on slavery, white men propose denying the first black president his constitutional right to name a Supreme Court nominee. So I'm going to look past the nation built on slavery tripe. Time is limited and valuable. But white men propose denying the first black president his constitutional right. We've already nominated two. He's already nominated two. And these white people have already confirmed two Supreme Court justices. Two Hispanics, I think, right? No, Sotomayor is Hispanic. Kagan's not. Whatever. So I bring that up only because this is what we're going to hear the next few months. We're going to hear absolute garbage like this from a New York Times editorial writer. Potentially, Mr. President, potentially. The ball's in your court. That's a great opportunity. If you really feel that you have not done enough to stop the polarization, if you feel that way, here's your second chance. If you regret being too polarizing, then how about you select a nominee who isn't polarizing? Jonah Goldberg had a few ideas. Um, He said, of course, the president could abstain and leave it up to his successor, hoping that Hillary or Bernie even wins. Um, Or I think Joe Biden will still jump in. But so he could leave it up to the next person. Uh, Or I don't know if this could be done, but maybe a... um, a year-long appointment. A year-long appointment. And you nominate a uh, conservative 
for this temporary appointment just to keep the balance of the court the same it was the same as it was before Scalia passed. And then after the election, you know, we can uh, readdress it. So that, that's what we call a gesture of goodwill. Now, you're laughing at these proposals. <laughs> you're laughing because you know there's a 0% chance that the president will do either of those. Well, I think that tells you all you need to know about his so-called biggest regret. Instead, he's going to appoint a super progressive. He's going to demand an up or down vote. The Republicans will say no. And New York Times editorial writers will scream racism. That's, we, listen, I, I don't have a crystal ball in front of me, but that's exactly what's going to happen. He's going to nominate super progressive, demand a vote. Republicans will say no. And people are going to say it's racism. That, that process, that's inherently divisive. Now, just to be clear, if roles were switched, let's say there was a Republican in the White House and a Democratic Senate, I would encourage the Republican president to make a last-ditch effort to get a conservative on the court as well. I, I, of course I'd be arguing for that. I don't blame the president for wanting to do that at all. What I am critical of the president for doing is saying, gosh, you know... Everyone is so polarizing in D.C. And then not having just a hint of reflection, self-reflection on his potential role in that and not acknowledging a potential opportunity to stop it. We'll see. I want to come back with a little story about uh, Scalia. You know, he was best buds with Ginsburg. Quite the odd couple. I want to share a story with them coming up next. one 888 Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Oh, man. Hillary won Nevada. How did that happen? I don't get that. Why was I, why was I thinking that we wouldn't find out till late at night? The, the, I, was a to- I don't get that. I thought the caucus isn't until 8, so they're just calling it this early. It's 52-48 with 50-something percent of the precincts in, so I guess they think that's it. Yeah, what a bummer. Man, I really want Hillary to lose. <laughs> Rooting for some chaos and ugliness in the Democratic Party. Chaos and ugliness. Although I suppose uh, winning by four percentage points or so um, isn't a huge victory. But in the end, that's uh, that's all that matters, I suppose. Well, it's a good run, Burn, Because he's going to get clobbered in South Carolina still. So, oh, man. Oh, well. Hillary it is. Um make this point here i think it's uh this is a message to myself mostly as i've been uh, exchanging tweets all morning with uh dave here in los angeles uh scalia and ruth bader ginsburg you know they're best buds Isn't that hilarious justice scalia and ruth bader ginsburg best buddies they'd celebrate new year's eve together almost every year they parasailed together in france and rode an elephant together in India. He said, call us the odd couple. She likes opera, 
and she's a very nice person. What's not to like except her views on the law? And then she said of him, I'd love him, but sometimes I want to strangle him. This is the part I wanted to, to share, though. And I think this is important for all of us. This is uh, Ginsburg in her tribute to her buddy. From our years together on the D.C. circuit, we were best buddies. We disagreed now and then. But when I wrote for the court and then received a Scalia dissent, the opinion that I ultimately released was notably better than my initial circulation. Justice Scalia nailed all the weak spots and gave me just what I needed to strengthen the majority opinion. In other words, he made her better and no doubt she made him better. So she would write her opinion, give it to Scalia. Scalia would find all the holes in it, all the weakest parts in it. And then she would rewrite her opinion and it would be infinitely better. That's an important relationship. Please make sure that you have someone in your life with different political views than you that you can have a good conversation with. So I share this because, you know, Dave in LA who's been tweeting me, like it's not, it's first of all, it's Twitter. So what are you gonna, but it's not a great conversation because it's a lot of, you know, you're dumb, blah, 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 like you know, from him. Right. Um, but that's not what I mean. You, like, that, that's no good. That's, that's destructive and frustrating. Someone who you can have, with different political views that you can have a good conversation with, it's very important because it'll make you stronger. Sometimes your opinion will change and you'll agree with them and that's good. And I'd say probably most of the time you will strengthen your opinion and that's good too because now you'll have new ways to articulate the truth. You'll have fewer holes, fewer gaps in your argument and you'll be able to articulate your argument in a way that other people will better understand it as well. You'll be that much stronger. Please try to find that person in your life. And, and if you know who that is, have more conversations with them. Like put your arguments up to scrutiny with them in a safe place. And keep your mind open to maybe you can uh, change your opinions as well. You'll be a better person for it. I guarantee it. Um, last week was the uh, season premiere for The Walking Dead. Here's my analogy on this. Uh, wife and I love The Walking Dead. We love it. So before the season premiere, they had a marathon of all the last episodes. And I saw an episode, just a couple minutes of an episode, where, and no spoilers, I'm not giving any spoilers. Short background, there's a core group of people in a zombie apocalypse. And they have to survive on their own, and they've grown very strong together. They're fighters and they're survivors. And last season, they came across this town. Now this town, Alexandria, from the beginning of the apocalypse has been walled off. There's a ton of food on the inside. There's a ton of resources. So the people in the town have never had to leave their little walled in town and they have no idea what it's like out there in the apocalypse world. They have no clue. So this tough battle hardened group comes across this town and they're filthy and they've never taken a shower and they've never had a night's sleep and, and they're just like at their wits edge and they stumble into this town where people are still having block parties and they're cooking full course meals and they're, they're hanging out and they got sports and games and they're acting like nothing's going on. They're acting like the world didn't just come to an end. So they have to decide the main group has to decide if they're going to stay in this town or go on 
trying to survive in the woods. So Rick, who's the leader, he says, we're going to stay. And Carol comes in and says, no, we shouldn't. This place will make us weak. We will let our guard down and we will become weak. Which is such a fascinating argument because you'd think, like, of course we want to stay in this safe town. Like, finally, we found it. We're here. Of course we want to stay where the the walls are up and the enemy's outside and we can live a life of ease again. But she was right. They stayed and they became weak. They stayed inside this walled area and they became weak. They put their weapons away. They let their guard down. And they became sloppy. To bring it back to us, politically, intellectually, we don't want to become weak. Venture outside the walls. Challenge your opinions. Hold them up to scrutiny to someone who vehemently disagrees. You'll end up stronger in the end. Because if you stay in the confines of what's comfortable, you'll become weak. Scalia and Ginsburg, they weren't afraid to have their opinions challenged. They knew it made them better people. And they weren't afraid to be friends, even though they vehemently disagreed with each other. If you can find that relationship, it'll be one of the most important relationships you have. 1-888-933-93. Again, breaking in just right now that uh, Hillary has won Nevada. Well, hopefully we get some good news coming out of South Carolina on the Republican side. Mike Slater Show The Blaze. Radio Network, spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusaders, thanks for being here. Um, So I made a prediction a couple months ago on who Trump's VP is going to be, and then I walked it back. I don't know why. Should have stuck with it because it looks like this guy. uh, Well, I would like to uh, reanimate. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Reevaluate, not even that. Resubmit. Resubmit. My Trump VP nominee, I'll tell you what that is coming up in the next segment. But first, I want to play this clip right here uh, from South Carolina. This is a a rally that Trump had in South Carolina. Put your political stuff aside. Um, You know how we analyze Trump. We like to we're putting politics aside, just looking at the optics of it. Um, Like what's going on? Like how is he winning? How are people viewing him? How is he running his race? You know, we've said from really 10 months ago that he's not running a, a political campaign. He's running a business negotiation. Um, you know, it's all about strength and everyone else is weak or some variation of weak, whether they're sweaty, sleepy, low energy, robotic, whatever. Right. Um, so how is he doing all this? So it's, it's, it's beautiful marketing game that he's, that he's playing and, and succeeding at brilliantly. So put politics aside for a couple of minutes here and let's analyze how he's doing it because he has changed the game. Running for president will never be the same ever again. Here's one other side prediction. Just Put this one in your back pocket. Well, first of all, Kanye West will will run for president in 2020. Okay, so I guarantee you that. Kanye West will run for president in 2020. Why would he not? Why would he not? <laughs> Someone give me an answer. No, no, I know why he shouldn't. You know why he shouldn't. Why would he not? 
It's very different. So he's going to run. Second thing, uh, I think we've totally lost it when a someone running for president comes out with their own WWE style intro song. So if you if you ever watch WWE, like you got the two guys fighting on stage or on the on the stage on the uh, on the mat in the ring and then someone's intro music will play and everyone immediately instantly knows who it is and goes nuts. Right. I'm, I used to watch wrestling when the rock was big. So like they're fighting like triple H is fighting uh, the undertaker or whatever. And then you hear boom, 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 boom. Do you smell? And everyone just goes crazy. Ah! And then because they know the rocks coming out. It's all entertainment. It's all a show. Now I know political politicians have songs that they play at their rallies. That's not what I mean. I mean, their own song their own intro song that when you hear it you go nuts for like that is full-on entertainment zone that we've entered into when that happens so uh keep an eye out for that as well but anyway this clip right here is just fascinating to take in it's gold you couldn't pay a campaign manager to stage something like this and there's a couple different things I want to point out in it, but here it is. This is a uh, at a rally. Two gentlemen come up. Um, the first guy's maybe 50 years old, uh, bald guy, white mustache, wearing a bright orange hunting jacket. The second guy is eh, maybe 32 years old, tall, bald guy, looks like a veteran. Like if you saw him walking down the street, you'd be like, "Oh, you're a veteran." Like he just he looks it. So I guess there's some protester in the audience who's causing trouble, and I don't know what these two guys do. I don't know if they tackle him or push them out or usher them out or I don't know what happens but they do something and Trump invites them up take all this in I want to see how they should be ashamed of themselves it's disgraceful who is the person though raise your hand who's the person that took action over there come come here I love these guys I love these guys I love these people come here come here come here get over here look at this guy Come on up. Bring him up here. That's all right. Bring him up. I want him up here. Come here. Bring him up, too. Do not let them intimidate you. You back this man right here to the hill. They will say anything, they will do anything to keep in power, okay? We don't need who we've got in there now. I'm talking Republicans and Democrats. He's right. We need to get some fresh bunch up there. Some fresh blood. Some fresh thinking, okay? And my man, Donald Trump, I'll tell you what, I ain't to you, Donald. When you first got into this, I kind of was a lippy. I, I ain't gonna lie. So I don't know why Donald Trump, you're the best we got by far. He's a great public speaker, this guy. Uh, Remember that part right there. Remember that part. Two tours of Iraq. I'm a Richmond County deputy. (laughs) 
wasn't for Mr. Trump right here, I don't think any of us would have the voice that we have. This is the only man that's going to really bring America back. He understand what it means for me and my people out here have been to have been to, to war. The police, everything you talk about, Mr. Trump, I can promise you right now, my department and the departments around me, we need you. Is that the end clip? Great. I think we can stop it there, actually, uh, just for the sake of time. So it's about three, four minutes there. Um, that's unscripted. That is an incredibly powerful moment there. Mostly because it was unscripted. And it felt real. It wasn't staged like every other political event there is. Remember we read a Mark Stein article a couple weeks back. Mark Stein went to a rally in Vermont. A Trump rally. Mark Stein, uh, I mean, just as conservative as anyone there is. I, I really value uh, and respect this man's perspective. He said the most defining characteristic of a Donald Trump rally is that it was fun. It was a show. Now, again, I just want to put a disclaimer here. I'm not saying that this is something, this is why we should elect someone for president. I'm saying this is the force that's at play among others. Stein talked about how he went to, um, the Vermont State of the State Address. And the governor uh, was given a speech using two teleprompters so that he could do the Obama uh, swivel head move like he's at Wimbledon following the world's slowest center court rally, just back and forth. Back and forth. Back. (laughs) Two prompters for the Vermont State of the State Address for some stupid boilerplate speech that you forget as soon as you heard it. Donald Trump, not no prompters, just a piece of paper with a couple bullet points on it. I saw a picture of one of his uh, notes, and it had five points on it. It was uh, uh, immigration, wall. One of them was Hillary, disaster, right? <laughs> That's all he goes off of. And Stein's biggest takeaway was that the rally was fun. He said it was one of the funniest stand-up acts he's ever seen. It's a show. Do you remember this one part? I think he was in Vermont. When there were some protesters and he said, throw them out of there, throw them out. He said, take their coats. Remember this? He's like, take their coats. Well, it's like 10 degrees out there. Throw them out in the cold. Take their coats. I want to read from Mark Stein's article here. He said on MSNBC, they had a discussion on how Trump could be so outrageous as to demand the confiscation of private property. But in show business, this is what is known as a joke. And in the theater, it lands. Everybody's laughing and having a ball. That's the point. I think it would help if every member of the pundit class had to attend a Trump rally before cranking out the usual shtick about how he's tapping into what Jeb called angst and anger. Yes, Trump supporters are indignant and right to be. But anger is not the defining quality of a Trump night out. The candidate is clearly having the time of his life, and that's infectious. And that's why his supporters are having a good time, too. If Mitt had campaigned like this, he'd be president. But he had no ability to connect with voters. That moment there with those two gentlemen coming up on stage, that is pure gold. Because those two guys love him. They are about him. They have a deep respect. It's almost like the 50-year-old man who went up there, he looked at Donald Trump as if Donald Trump was his hero. Not in an infatuation way, in a... In a, this is a man who has prestige. This is a man 
who I who I value. It was almost like a like the fifty year old guy was a twelve year old boy meeting Babe Ruth. It was just like this. That's what that that's what their their relationship was. Why? Because Donald Trump has charisma. I think we talked about charisma last week. Did you notice? And I pointed it out after it happened. Right before the second guy was about to speak. So the first guy's done talking. He walks away from the mic. And the second guy's there, the veteran. And he doesn't walk up to the mic right away. He sort of steps back for a second. And you might have heard uh, Donald Trump say something like, oh, I'd say a few words. And he was like, uh, I don't you know. I don't, I didn't. Did you hear what Trump did after that? He grabbed the microphone and said, he's a great public speaker, this guy. Trump's never met this guy in his life. How does he know he's a great public speaker? He doesn't. He's just building him up. He's just telling this guy what he needs to hear to get his confidence to do something that's very nerve wracking, talk in front of a huge crowd. That's a perfect example of Trump's charisma in action. He used it against me. When we did our 90 minute interview with Trump, it was, um, we met in his office for maybe 10, 15 minutes before. And there were three people in his office. It was him, Across the table, me, my mentor, and uh, the head of Simon & Schuster, uh, was, uh, the, his book that just came out. So the two people, the two other people are talking to Trump for a couple minutes. I'm just sitting there. Uh, and then my, my mentor, he goes, Mr. Trump, I'd like to introduce you to Mike Slater. He's out of San Diego. He's going to be interviewing you for, uh, for the 90 minutes. And Donald Trump goes, please, I know who he is. And then he looks at me and goes, you have a great reputation. Okay, so for a minute, I go, or not even, maybe a couple seconds, I go, oh, oh, Mr. Trump knows who I am. Okay, very flattered. Thank you, sir. And like, he built me up. He built me up. Oh, I please, I know. You have a great rep. Oh, I have a great rep. Donald, who's talking about me? Who's talking about my great reputation to Donald? He's never heard of me in his whole life. He doesn't, it's like, he, but he got me for like 10 seconds. So there's about 10 seconds of being like, oh, wow. And then I realized, I was like, oh, I just got had. He just, he totally just tried to charisma me. And he did. Do we have the clip? Um, flip, I'm sorry, I don't have the number on me. It's the one, his interview from 1988, the one with Larry King. Do you know which one that is? Maybe, yeah, go ahead and play the, play the beginning of this one real quick. Pending, pending. Let's give America maybe a different look at you. You're the author of a bestseller, and everyone knows you as the owner of buildings and hotels. But you are what might be classified as an Eastern Republican. 1988. Well, I guess you could say that, yes. Which means kind of a Rockefeller, Chase Manhattan Republican. I never thought of another of those terms. How do I, you define? Are you a Bush Republican? No, I think I'm. I'm really the people that I do best with are the people that drive the taxis. You know, wealthy people don't like me because I'm competing against them all the time, and they don't <laughs> like me, and I like to win. The fact is, I go down the streets of New York, and the people that really like me are the taxi drivers and the workers, et cetera, et cetera. And then I really get well, a great why are you stop that. I have no idea. Charisma, charisma, charisma. That's what that is. I'll end on this note. We always hear about the uh, African-American vote, the black vote in America. Black people are 12% of the American population. You hear all this talk about the Hispanic vote. By the way, you never hear about the Asian vote. Right, all these racial politics, it ignores very, one very important fact. White people are 72% of America. 72%.
and middle-aged blue-collar white guys are the biggest voting block by far. Always have been. And Trump is beloved by that group. There's a clip, and I don't have it in front of me. Maybe I can send it over in a second, with a woman calling into C-SPAN. And she said that she, she goes, oh, Jeb Bush, oh, he's so awkward and insecure, but I love Donald Trump. He turns me on. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Charisma. Women want to be with Trump. Men want to be Trump. That's the bottom line. That's been the case for decades now, well before he went into the political scene. Trump's going to win a lot of the black vote. He's going to win a lot of the Hispanic vote. He'll by far win the women vote, and he will win the blue-collar, middle-aged white guy vote by an absolute crushing landslide because he's charismatic, and he's a super-rich alpha male who never backs down, builds tall buildings, and marries supermodels. Are those good reasons to vote for a president? Not at all. Is that why he's going to win in a landslide? Absolutely. Why is Donald Trump going to win? I'll say it again. He's a super rich alpha male who builds tall buildings and marries supermodels. 1-888-933-93. That's why people are supporting him like, like that fervently. You can like his policies. Totally fine. But the fervent love of him is something much deeper than that. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is... Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. Do you smell what the rock is cooking? One day a politician's going to have their own their own intro music and then we've totally jumped the shark. How long we got here, brother? Only a couple. Oh my gosh, we got to go. Slider Crusaders, have a wonderful weekend, and we'll see you uh, next Saturday. By the way, my prediction on who's going to be his vice president, Mark Cuban. And now Mark Cuban came out and said, yeah, maybe. <laughs> oh, jeez. Mike Slater showed the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater.